It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe, Sam Park, and John Ramey with you with a special uh, evening recording on this Friday, December 1st. We were off last week because of Thanksgiving, and I had a cold. So we're going to catch up. Argentina electing a libertarian, chainsaw-wielding, apparently crazy man. I'm saying that hyperbolically, but Javier Millet uh, is making news. He hasn't even been inaugurated yet. The Netherlands have elected a far-right leader in their election. Uh, Wilders is his surname. We will talk about how to pronounce his uh, first name. Um, And he may have to form a minority government, it looks like. And it's kind of a tricky path for him. Regrettably, the ceasefire has not held. Hostilities are renewed in the Hamas-Israel war after about a six-day ceasefire that led to the um, release of hostages. And... uh, yeah, Sam Park, that's, that's a good uh, full plate for uh, this Friday. Well, that's what happens. Well, you know, we all had full plates for Thanksgiving, obviously. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, that's what happens when you take a week off. You have to catch up with a bunch of stuff. Thankfully, actually, there weren't that many other things. that. So I think we can easily squeeze in all the things we need to do today. All right. Javier Millet, president-elect of Argentina, a self-professed libertarian admirer of Donald Trump. He's an economist by trade. Yes. And also looks like Jack Black's stunt double. Uh, You mentioned a couple of episodes ago he is a musician who performs in a Rolling Stones tribute band or has. He did. I I don't think he still does that. He has performed. He was the lead singer of a Rolling Stones tribute band. I mean, you can kind of see it in his stage presence. He, of course, made headlines uh, by wielding a chainsaw. And the B-roll on this, when you watch coverage of his uh, campaign, is phenomenal because there's this wild-haired man like gesticulating madly with a chainsaw about how he's in a st- crowd, right? He's, he's got looks, people yes. right next to him and he's, looks, he's running the chainsaw. Yeah. No, it, it's like, it's not like that thing has blanks, you know, it's uh, so yeah, he uh, kind of shot to renown uh, and his political party is only like two years old and he's far right, a libertarian. He wants to do a bunch of weird things. He wants to dollarize their economy uh, in an attempt to combat inflation, which is like 142%. And he also now says they won't join BRICS because he doesn't want to do business with communists. China, of course, is a huge trading partner for I Argentina. Think they're largest, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. yeah, it's China and then it's Brazil. So where to begin with, again, I call him a madman. He's not, uh, we don't know him to be actually insane, but uh, eccentric. Javier Millet, president of Argentina. I think we can safely characterize him as eccentric. Sure. I'll go with that. Okay. So what do you want to talk about first? I mean, just not not joining BRICS. That doesn't seem very bright. Well, first of all, that was, I wouldn't say widely predicted, but uh, it's certainly not a surprise. He is, by his own characterization, an anarcho-libertarian. And so in a way... You might expect that he would want to join what we've characterized on this program as a sort of authoritarian leaning group like the expanded BRICS, right. uh, as I've come to call it, the Because Iris uh, <laughs> grouping. But now I have to abandon that because the A is gone, apparently. Right. right? right. Uh, but in a kind of weirdly refreshing way, he seems to actually mean it, right? He doesn't want to actually join up with 
communists. And as we discussed in our episode about the expansion of the BRICS grouping, it really does benefit China more than anybody else. And so from a purely ideological standpoint, it does make sense that Malay doesn't seem to want to join that grouping. Okay, fine. But they have 142% annualized inflation. Half the uh, population is below the poverty line. And they have like billions due this month to the uh, International uh, Monetary Fund. Like they don't really have in Argentina, they don't have time to be playing around with ideology, do they? Well, the, the fact is the International Monetary Fund, with whom Millet met this week, by the way, he traveled to Washington, D.C., even before his inauguration to meet with the IMF, of which Argentina is the largest debtor. And so uh, the IMF is generally, historically, that is a Western-dominated institution. And they're frequently, in fact, these days at loggerheads with China that operates its own, you know, lending programs to various countries under various terms for various reasons. And so if he's trying to make nice with the IMF, and by the way, he has moderated some of his rhetoric ever since winning the election, as you might expect, and he needs the IMF more than he needs China, I think is the calculation that he's made at least because the IMF has always, if increasingly begrudgingly come through for Argentina. Whereas when China lends money to countries, many of those countries end up experiencing some form of borrower's remorse they feel that the sort of uh, repayment terms are too onerous. Whereas the IMF, again, begrudgingly, has forgiven certain tranches of debt uh, owed to them by certain countries over time. And so I think that Malay calculates, probably correctly, by the way, that the IMF is the better bet as someone to lend his country money. And as you say, there are numerous economic crises that Argentina has been experiencing for a number of years now, to the point where it sort of becomes, it feels routine to us here in the West. It's like, oh, well, Argentina is having economic problems. Tell me something I don't know. But this is by far the worst that their economy is, the worst shape that their economy has been in for decades. And again, we're talking about a country that's normally an economic basket case. But as you know, you listed a number of these. They have a debt crisis. They have an inflation crisis. They have uh, a a currency crisis. Uh, And so uh, still and all, though, Millet has not backed off of any of the really radical economic policies that he campaigned on. And so we'll have to see how these things all shake shake up. For instance, as you say, he wants to abolish the central bank and therefore convert the currency from the Argentinian peso to the U.S. dollar. Okay, I did some reading on this. First of all, that has been tried in the past twice 
in Latin America, and it was like Ecuador and Panama. Yes. Those are tiny economies. That's right. And this was also like 100 years ago. Tiny economies compared to Argentina, Argentina, which is the third largest uh, economy in Latin America behind only Brazil and Mexico. In spite of everything. That's right. Yes. Just right. to... And they've already had a currency change that I can recall when they went from the Austral to the peso in the 90s, right? In That's another right. one of these cyclical uh, currency crises. But to dollarize, the economy would be giving up so much autonomy, wouldn't it? That's right. And there's some debate amongst economists as to whether this could even be done. And he's well, a, he's an economist by trade, but like this is not a mainstream position. Certainly not. But there are economists who think it is, in fact, possible. Uh, and not, you know, uh, maniacs or anything like that, but, you know, actual academic economists. And Malay himself says it will take at least two years. And uh, I think that's that might be optimistic, right? Uh, but, for instance, anybody who has any money in Argentina today, as quickly as they can, will buy cash dollars with it, either on the... Uh, official market or on the black market and they'll literally have packets of american cash in in a safe in their home or in their sock drawer because as the currency continues to lose value the dollar will only buy you more pesos this is by the way only a sort of stopgap measure because if the peso is constantly losing value sure you're getting more pesos when you cash in your dollar but those pesos aren't worth as much as they were when you bought the dollars to begin with. It doesn't. You're not getting ahead of anything this way. No, you're just plugging the leak in the in the boat in the boat. Exactly. But the the point is that the Argentinian economy is already partly dollarized, right? He's not right. There's doing a de facto it. dollarization that has just kind of organically grown up. That's right. This. But the scale of of completing the dollarization would be so large that it's difficult to see how it could actually be accomplished. So this is something that we're going to want to keep an eye on. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, there's no real stakes involved for us here in the United States as to how this process turns out. Except for he's great media with his wild hair and his antics and his chainsaw. Yeah, that's what I meant by no real stakes, Joe. Right, okay, so Try sorry. and keep up here, okay? Sorry, I'm a, I'm a, I have journalist brain, yeah. Yeah, uh, apparently. <laughs> He also said, uh, I think during his visit to Washington, he said, our allies will be the United States and Israel, right? Like, there are just so many deeply unserious things about this man who has been elected president of Argentina. Uh, Why is that unserious? I don't understand what you mean by that. I, it, it doesn't sound very evolved. Like, he's a Trump fan, right? Sure. He's okay. only going to worry about being allies with Israel and the United States. I mean, that's just a... It seems very ideological, right? And that's it certainly is, yeah. And that, and that, I think, in the experience of doing this podcast with you, that doesn't seem to be the most enlightened way to conduct foreign policy. Okay, I would agree with you, but the idea that, uh, but hey, I guess that's what got him elected too. Yes, exactly. He did win handsomely, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that anybody, any leader of any country, not least in Latin America, would be rather ideological is not no, true, it's yeah. not really that surprising the it's other just that his character is so 
over the top that it, it you know it's it's we might be more disposed to thinking of him uh clownishly than perhaps we ought to be and and as you talk about his dealings with the imf as opposed to china that that makes sense um i mean certainly that is a model that works in politics right um boris in the uk kind of acts like a boob is shrewd in his way yes yeah. although it didn't serve him very well by the end um one other thing and i'll we'll get off argentina but and, and this is just me editorializing and i think you will understand this Anybody who says they're a libertarian, I have a hard time taking seriously. Right, I agree with you, especially if they're going to be the head of the government. Right. He's going to like, you know, slash government spending, no stimulus. It's just it's a weird playbook. It is. But it just goes to show you how dire right. the economic problems have become in Argentina, that they're willing to take a chance on a guy like this, who, again, won a resounding victory in the in the runoff. All right. Speaking of far right uh, election winners, can we call? Sorry, before we move to Netherlands, are, are we okay calling uh, Javier Malay far right, or should we just call him a, uh, a narco libertarian? I think I'd stick with the narco libertarian because he's yeah. he's so far out of any real category. Like we right, said, he's not on the continuum. No, no, he's sort of off to the, like sort of adjacent to the continuum, yeah. right? He's within you, you can he you he's within visual distance, but he's not really on it yeah. in a in a weird kind of way. And I think part of it has to do with just uh, being South American, right? Just sort of geographically uh, isolated from the rest of uh, the kind of uh, interlocking web of international relations in a, in a way we'll see well again it's, it'll be something to keep an eye on okay the dutch have definitely elected a far-right politician yes uh, yert wilders yert wilders spelled yeah. g-e-e-r-t uh and it looks like wilders but you're going with uh yert wilders i'm very confident that it's wilders yes yes i'm a little shaky on it. i'm not okay. quite certain about it. my dutch pronunciation is I'm, i'm don't really have a good handle on it i'm given to understand though that it's yert wilders dutch is a challenging language and the dutch are a fascinating people and they have elected this guy who's been on the scene for some time i yes. have seen wilders name probably at least for a decade um, yes, many years. Yeah, I think 2006, he first started to gain a lot of prominence. So he's won this election with his Freedom Party, right? But he doesn't have a majority. He's just got a plurality. Yes. And then the two biggest right-leaning parties that would help him form a coalition government are like, no way, buddy, lose our number. In the beginning, right after he won, it seemed like the the main one was willing to work with him. The outgoing but, Prime Minister Root of the conservative... Uh, Mark Rutte, yes. That's yeah, right. VVD party. Yes. Uh, and But they changed their mind. So they're willing to like work with them on issues they agree on, like immigration. Surprise, surprise. But yeah, they're not looking to like actually join the cabinet. That's right. So we're going to have to see if he can even form a government. And if not, then they, I guess they might have to have a new set of elections. I'm not sure that that's going to solve the problem, but we're just going to have to see. And I wonder, uh, because Wilders is very anti- 
very anti-immigrant, but as you're saying, right, very anti-Muslim. And I wonder if the recent outbreak of of war in the Middle East might have pushed the idea of Islamic extremist terrorism up uh, up a few notches in the voter priority uh, sort of spectrum. That's pure speculation on my no, part. I've not seen sense. any data to back that idea up. But it was sort of a surprise, apparently, that Wilders won the election after so many years. Like, you know. Yeah, he's been he, kicking around. He's been on talk shows. Yeah. And right like after, even in the States. Sure. Right after he won, he, it, it was one of these things like, I'm going to Disneyland. You know, he just seemed, he, even he was dumbfounded. And, uh, so we'll have to see if they if he can actually form a government. I don't know enough about Dutch politics. I don't pay a lot of attention to it because it's such a small country that it's not really going to have again a sort of like Argentina, if, although for different reasons, it's not going to have all that much impact other than as a sort of signpost. For instance, when Robert Fico won the elections in Slovakia a month or two ago. He was another far-right nationalist type of candidate, but Slovakia is a tiny country, so it doesn't make that big a difference. And we might broaden this out a little bit. It seems as though, in Europe, that is, far-right extremist candidates do well in small countries. And that would seem to make sense, because it doesn't take a lot of votes to swing the outcome one way or another. But and they- Immigration has a more outsized impact on the demography of a very much so. Yes. And whereas it's harder to swing the outcome in a larger country where more mainstream candidates have been more successful this year, for instance, as in Poland and Spain. Uh, And so that is sort of a, a little bit of a relief, I guess. That, you know, in the countries that matter the most, these sorts of candidates in Europe again, right, uh, aren't doing quite as well as they are in the larger country. So we talked about the conservative party and outgoing prime minister, uh, Mark Rutte. Yes. That would be one group that will not play ball, at least as far as joining the coalition with Wilders. There's another party called the uh, New Social Contract Party. They're center right. And their leader is a guy called uh, Peter Omzeit, I believe, is how you say that. And they won't deal with Wilders specifically because of his uh, anti-Islam rhetoric. And they generally think he has uh, unconstitutional positions on uh, immigration. So that's a non-starter, too. Exactly. And there are so many parties in the Netherlands that Wilders' victory... He only had like what thirty percent or something, right? It's not like he had a, he has a commanding majority or something. Twenty four, like yeah, twenty four percent, twenty even even worse for him, right? And obviously, none of the left leaning parties are going to work with him at all. So, uh, their quote was, "It's impossible, a no go." Right, and so you know, what's he going to do? Uh, it's difficult to 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 imagine, but you never know how these things could shake out. Okay, let's move to Hamas and Israel and the war in Gaza, there was a ceasefire on the 22nd of November. Initially, 
was to be a four-day pause or lull in hostilities. This allowed for the initial release of 50 hostages. There were subsequent hostage releases as the ceasefire lasted until about the 28th of November. And then there were reports of violations of that ceasefire agreement. And the resumption of hostilities began, uh, sadly, today, the 1st of December in the morning um, in Gaza. And Antony Blinken, the United States Secretary of State, confirmed that it was mostly Hamas's, not mostly, he said it was Hamas who did not honor the terms of the ceasefire. And then Israel started the war back up again. It is surreal to think about it like a timeout in a basketball game, right? And then, okay, let's start the war again. I, I we okay, just well, it's it's nothing at all like a timeout in the basketball game. I mean, I, first of all, and <laughs> the first, it's you know you don't extend the timeout because hostages are released in basketball, right? Right. And so, uh, it's just war is such an insane thing to conceive of that 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 there are rules seems absurd, but of course there are agreements, and this is a good thing that this happened. Absolutely. It's a, sad, it's a sad thing that it stopped, but that's just but it's it, very... it, the, its shelf life was limited anyway. Sure. Right? There are only so many hostages that Hamas had left. And once they'd freed all of them, then the war was going to start back up regardless. But you're right. It's great that some of the hostages were released. That's the main thing. But more broadly, I would say, is that it demonstrated to everybody, not just the combatants, but everybody in the world who's paying attention to this, that there is something to be gained from negotiation, even amongst bitter enemies such as these. And so, yes, I think that's the, the main disappointment for me about the collapse of the of the ceasefire is that uh, it's, you know, it just seems as though the gains from negotiations have been, at least for the time being, exhausted but it was important that the ceasefire was instituted to begin with just to demonstrate the importance of negotiation the fact that we're only talking about a ceasefire and hostages is a good thing it means that maybe the the threat of this expanding into a regional conflict for the moment has moderated i would agree with that yes and that's as you say that's a good. very good sign but uh we don't know how this is going to play out in the future but for instance, you cite these numbers about the dire conditions in Gaza, and it's, it is awful. But so far, these are just reports. There's been very little firsthand media coverage inside of Gaza, but there will be eventually. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before. And once reporters get into Gaza and see what things are going to be like, it's going to be nightmarish. And so people just, I think, need to prepare themselves for this. It's going to be something like we've seldom seen anywhere. And again, I think it will be very difficult to deal with. And for me, there's already a lot of sort of, you know, professional commentators, God bless them, right, who have begun to talk about, well, what happens the day after? Who's going to run Gaza you know, if Israel succeeds in eradicating Hamas, or at least damaging them enough that they can't no longer be in charge of Gaza. It's a legitimate question. It is. Uh, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask about this, but 
I think we should at the same time ask, what will there be of Gaza to run for anybody? I saw in a, a, a prior to the one uh, last week, that is, parts of Gaza, according to the uh, an article in the Associated Press, resemble a moonscape right. was the word they used. Uh, and where will there actually be for people to live? If you think about recent, relatively recent examples in history, there was a Marshall Plan after the yes. Second World War, right? Is Israel really prepared to implement their version of the Marshall Plan in Gaza afterwards? Because if they don't, they're going to have this same problem again, right? Well, if not worse, right? right. I mean, but... When you think about it, the United States and the Allies leveled Japan and leveled Germany and made sure they rebuilt them. That's right. Now, I would say that... There, and it wasn't, somebody... it wasn't altruism, right? It's, no, it's for security. It was... Exactly. And I would say that this is an opportunity for the Arab states to step up uh, in that, in this specific regard. For instance, they've already said numerous times that they don't really want to be in charge of security for Gaza afterwards. I think they might be prevailed upon to change their mind about that. Right? They, you know, they say, well, we don't want to... Specifically Egypt. Yes, they don't want to go into Gaza in the back of Israeli tanks, right? Uh, and that makes sense because it makes them seem like collaborators, which a lot of Palestinians consider them to be already, by the way. Uh, but they could sort of mitigate that reputation that they have amongst the Palestinians if they could help reconstruct Gaza after the war, whenever that is. But Israel has said that they have not changed their the, the aims of the war. It's just a pause, and it was just a pause in the war. Anthony Blinken yesterday was saying that Israel needs to do a better job in their planned operations in the south of Gaza, protecting civilian lives than they did in the north of Gaza. I think Palestinians, with some justification, consider that to just be rhetoric, right? Because what's the United States going to do if Israel fails to do that? Right. Probably not much. Uh, and this presents difficulties for the United States, which I'm sure, if our Congress weren't quite so dysfunctional, might come up with an aid package for Gaza afterwards. I can't see that getting through this Congress as it's constituted today. And so that will have to wait at least a year if it happens at all, which I'm not especially optimistic about. You know, we have talked about this just not on our podcast, but with the state of the world and the multiple potential wars or the hot war in Europe with uh, Russia and, and Ukraine. And now this in Gaza, the tension over Taiwan. Every day that the sun rises and sets and a larger global conflict has not erupted speaks so well of the international leadership of President Biden. And it's, I think that's right. It is fascinating how maybe it's not fascinating. I guess pundits have been telling us for our entire lives that Americans don't vote about foreign policy. But that just, I don't, I don't quite buy that. People seem to want to win the Cold War. 
and they voted yeah, like but it. The, 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 uh, well, this, I think, is a good segue into our final segment. During the Cold War, we had a, a bipolar superpower right. structure. Today, we have a multi, multipolar world, and that's just the fact, right? The What the United States wants isn't all that important in the grand scheme of things anymore. And that's partly because of China, but also other rising powers like India and the global South generally, who aren't all that powerful yet, but just because, again, as uh, as we've discussed, just because of sheer demography, they're going to want a greater say in how things are done. And this will be something we discuss in our uh, conversations in the coming weeks about COP28, uh, the uh, Environmental and Climate Change Summit being held right now in the United Arab Emirates. The, the Global South is going to want to have their voices heard on that particular issue, the poorer countries of the world, who are going to be the great victims of climate change and already are. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced this month, or last month, I should say, uh, by catastrophic flooding in the Horn of Africa. People in Kenya, Somalia, Uganda, Burundi, hundreds of thousands of people, no, no homes left to go to, not hearing about this. It's all Israel- and we're not even hearing about Ukraine, uh, which sudden, you know, was the top story. And now you barely hear it mentioned at all. But these people in Africa, you you might as well, they might as well not exist as far as our, our media is concerned. There's an actual genocide happening in Sudan right now. Nobody cares. Now, I get it, right? Israel is one of our longest standing allies. We have direct diplomatic relations at stake in that conflict. I understand that. But the idea that we shouldn't talk about these other things at all, it's obscene. And for instance, when Anthony Blinken correctly says that Israel needs to make sure they follow the laws of war and the laws of armed conflict, a lot of people in many countries, including this one, think that to hear any American say that is a sick joke. And yeah. one of the people most responsible for them thinking that way was Henry Kissinger, who died this week at the age of 100. And if only for his authorization, again, under the aegis of Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, and Kissinger was his national security advisor, but Kissinger signed off on the bombing of Cambodia, which killed hundreds of thousands of people. This was during the Vietnam War. Cambodia was not a combatant country in that war. But Nixon, with the help of Kissinger, bombed them anyway. And I'm very comfortable talking about Henry Kissinger as a war criminal. And if people want to quibble about that, that's fine. But I'm very convinced about this. And you're not alone, Sam. This is oh, that's, this I is know. not a radical position. No, of course not. Yeah, uh, and it's been baffling to me over the years why people still pay so much attention and respect to Kissinger. And I think his death helped me figure that out. It's partly because in the bipolar Cold War superpower equation, he was a bastard, but he was our bastard. No, not that, but. He and people of his generation created the entire international relations architecture 
after the Second World War, and he was in on that from the beginning. Right. And it just he happened to live longer than anybody else from that generation. He died at a hundred years old. But the other thing about it was that he would never shut up. His own insistence that he was a consequential person that you still needed to listen to, even though he left office, he left public life almost half his life ago, right? 50 years ago, in fact, we know that the Hamas atrocities occurred on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. Kissinger, and this is one of the few positive things he did, right, helped set up the peace negotiations that ended that war and later led to the full-on peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Uh, and I think this was a, I have no trouble saying that that's, that was a positive outcome, but just about every other thing he did, the coup in Chile, uh, I mean, these things are awful. But what I find ironic is that that was 1973, the Yom Kippur War. And that was basically the last consequential action he took in public life, half his lifetime ago. And yet, he's... for the rest of his life, insisted that people still needed to talk to him. Uh, unlike and his lasting and, legacy is undermining American credibility. That's right. I, th- I mean, one of them certainly. Uh, and I think it's really just kind of revolting. And I think uh, the consequences of his having done that are enormous and very negative. And people might have been willing. To forget about him if he'd had the sense to just shut up and fade off into retirement like all of his peers by the way right you never hear from condoleezza rice right you never hear from i don't know uh, whoever bill clinton's secretary of state was uh or any of these people right they retire and they let the, the professionals who are working for the elected leadership do their jobs instead of having to chime in about everything themselves. And But Kissinger would never do that. And so if people feel he's being treated unfairly, then in some ways it's because he brought that on himself by keeping himself in the public eye. A fascinating uh, end to this episode. And, you know, you and I have talked about Kissinger over the years, and I think I fell victim to the fact that, well, he's just an elder statesman. Right. We should want to know what he has to say about things. Eldest statement. Yeah, yeah, right. And and you we've had many conversations about this that you've said, look, nobody should ask him what he thinks about these things. It doesn't matter. He he blew it. Right. Yeah. And and it is interesting to reflect on that now. I would say, though, as the world order that he helped establish is very clearly unraveling. Yes, uh, but that's not his fault, though, right? No, I mean, not, no, no, no. It's That's just pressure of history. But a number of years ago, my sister gave me a copy of a book written about him by the British historian Neil Ferguson. Or perhaps Sorry, you got a minute sure. before we're done, just ahead. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, and it's fascinating because his career, again, at the, at the, at the beginning of the post-war period, is a, a, a really interesting lens through which we can view those years. As much as I despised him, it's a good read. And so I would actually recommend that to anybody. That's Neil Ferguson's book on Kissinger? That's right, called The Idealist. 
All right, next week, COP28, which is the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference. But confusingly, they started counting in the late 90s, so it's COP28. Um, update on the Middle East, of course. Good to be back. Have a good weekend, everybody. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Thanks, folks.